as we get to the end of Black History Month, I wanted to share one of my best memories from the last month. Uh, during a snow day, my daughter Evangeline made a big trifold presentation. You know the uh, like you did your science fair on. She <laughs> this is this is my daughter to a T. Like unsolicited, I'm gonna make a trifold presentation on Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And I just, I, man, I love that kid. What a wonderful girl. Uh, it, it had a drawing of him. It had some facts about his life. There was a little picture of a bus that she drew, and it just said boycott on it. I don't, I don't know if she thought they was boycotting buses, like, in general. But, I mean, the, the thing that's so sweet and innocent about it is that she understood the basic idea, which was that we, we've lived in a country, and, and in some ways still do, where uh, the color of your skin is counted against you. And... Uh, and, she, you know, she, she even had in the middle, she had this quote from his I Have a Dream speech. And it said, I have a dream that one day in Alabama, little black boys and girls will join hands with little white boys and little white girls as brothers and sisters. And I thought that was such a sweet little thing for my eight-year-old daughter to talk about, for her to want to, to bring into our, our life on a snow day. Um, now, see, one thing that drove Dr. King was this conviction that Jesus is key to healing racial injustice. That real justice and equality in this or in any society only can come through Jesus. That's why when you listen to the I Have a Dream speech, uh, you'll hear biblical allusion after biblical allusion uh, because Dr. King believed in the Bible and he understood that Jesus was trying to bring about true justice, that, that justice requires a divine intervention. Isn't that true? Uh, and true justice in this world requires a conception of justice that is otherworldly, if that makes sense. True justice in this world requires a conception of justice that's otherworldly, even to get off the ground. Moreover, lasting justice in this, world, in this world will only happen through God. Tonight, we're finishing our series on serving. Uh, and, and I want to tease our, our, our next service uh, before, before going too much further Tonight we're going to talk about justice and service, but as we, uh, before we go too much further, I want to talk about uh, what we'll be doing next week and for the four weeks that follow. We're going to have a series on God and government, God and government. Um, as I start talking about justice tonight, it's going to reveal our need for a greater kind of justice, uh, something that, that will help us to think about the role of government, the proper role of government, and how God fits into that. Uh, and starting next week, we're going we're gonna to talk about that. Now, before you get worried that I'm going to endorse something that you don't like, <laughs> I wanted to give you an idea of what we're going to talk about. I want to just say I think the next four weeks are going to be really hopeful. I think they're going to be hope-filled weeks. And a season where, if you mention politics or government, is like anything but hopeful, right? <laughs> uh, but I think we're going to have a very hopeful time talking about God and government. We're going to talk about the story of government next week. How do our human governments relate to God's story, God's plan for humanity? How is government envisioned by God, not just as like a, a necessary evil, but actually something that could be a force for good in the world? Could you imagine that? Uh, we'll talk through how human governments have gone wrong. Uh, uh, um, instances abound. <laughs> um, we'll, but we'll talk about the proper role of government biblically understood. When you read the Bible, what do you see is the proper role of government? 
And where are all of our political chaos is really heading to in God's plan to bring about redemption and healing in the world? And we're going to talk about the qualities of a godly leader in, in a couple weeks. As citizens of a, of a representative democracy, we should care about what good leadership looks like, don't you think? We should think about what does it mean to be a good leader? And the thing is, is that all of us could relate to this because we're all called to lead in various ways. So we should be thinking about what a good leader is. Um, in a few weeks, we're going to talk about the differences between the governments of this world, like the government of the United States, the government of France, and the kingdom of God, which is this theological idea of God coming in with authority to heal the nations. So what is the difference between those two things? Um, uh, and then... And the last week, we're going to talk about a couple of political issues that those of us in the United States, all of us in this room, a couple of political issues we should be thinking about. How do we understand these things from a biblical perspective? Um, so we're not going to try to be offensive <laughs> in this next series. We're, gonna, we're not going to try. Here's the thing, though. The gospel is kind of offensive because the gospel is this idea that, like, you're a sinner and you need help, uh, that you're broken and you need help, and so do I, you know? So that part, you can't take that offense out of it. <laughs> But, there is th but we're really going to be hopeful talking about what Jesus does when we give him the right place in our lives and in our world. I actually think, uh, if, if you're willing to grant me this, I think this is actually a wonderful series to bring somebody to who is otherwise jaded about how Christians talk about government. If you have somebody in your life who's like kind of jaded to that, I think, I think this next, these next four weeks is going to be the perfect thing for them. Um, I think, you know, often Christians get a bad name in this country because of alliances with various political movements, but I think we're going we're gonna to kind of transcend some of that and hopefully talk about something that's very hopeful and Jesus-focused. Good with me on that? I just introduced a series I'm not going to do anything about tonight, so a pro tip, don't do that when you're public speaking, but uh, hopefully you're getting excited about it. I am. Uh, tonight we're going to finish our service, our, our, our series on service. <laughs> with an eye toward justice, toward justice. We're going to talk about a key time in the history of God's people when they lost their way on what real servanthood looks like. Um, they lost sight of the importance of justice in their relationships to God. And the title for tonight's sermon is Justice and Devotion. Uh, if, you, if you'd like to follow along in your Bible, you can open up to the book of Isaiah. That's around halfway through your Bible. It's in the Old Testament. It goes Isaiah, Isaiah Jeremiah, Lamentations, uh, if you're looking for it in, in the Old Testament. What we're going to focus on is this tonight. When you bring personal love for God together with a lifestyle of service to others, it's there that God brings in miraculous restoration of your life and of the world around you. When you bring in personal devotion to God and a lifestyle of service to others, that's where God does something awesome. So devotion to God plus justice equals God's miracles. And this, this is the real deal. We believe that God does miraculous things, right? Are we Pentecostals in this room? Can I get a what, what? All right, let's pray. <laughs> Lord Jesus, we open our hearts to the scripture and we believe in the Bible. And God, for those of us who have questions about the Bible, we just pray that you'd meet us too. Uh, we we, we want to be open to everything that you would say to us tonight. If you're open to hearing from God, just say, God, I'm open to you. In Jesus' name, amen. So when you bring personal love for God and you match it, with a lifestyle of service to others, that's where you see uh, God bringing miraculous restoration in your life into the world around you. When we look in Isaiah, 
That's the, the, the text we're going to be looking at tonight. Uh, I'll give you a little context here. Isaiah lived in the late 8th and early 7th centuries before the Common Era. This is Iron Age Palestine, for those of you who love good history. God's people, though, were split into two rival kingdoms. So the people of Israel, Jewish people, were split into two rival kingdoms. In the north, there was a kingdom called Israel, and in the south, there was a kingdom called Judah. And they were split, and sometimes they would actually even fight against one another. Um, now, these, these two nations, Israel and Judah, they were caught in a power vacuum between their Assyrian neighbors to the north and east and their Egyptian neighbors to the south and west. So there was kind of this, like, power vacuum between the Assyrians and the Egyptians, and the Jewish people were kind of caught in the middle of it. And so sometimes they would find themselves making alliances with one side over the other just to protect themselves. Um, but what, what happened for Isaiah was that he was called by God to speak to the people in the southern kingdom of Judah and to tell them where they had gone wrong. Um, now, what happens is that during, during Isaiah's life, the political and spiritual life of Judah is slowly declining. It's getting worse and worse. People are getting more and more selfish, and they're honoring God less and less. Now, the northern kingdom actually falls to the Assyrians. The Assyrians attack, and they attack the northern kingdom, and it falls in about 722 before the Common Era, and the people are taken off into slavery. And, and the people in Judah and the southern kingdom are worried about the Assyrians coming in and, and destroying their land as well. And so the people in the southern kingdom, they continually go back and forth between honoring God and worshiping other gods, trusting in God for their defense and then trusting in other nations around them to help them with their national defense. And Isaiah prophesied that the southern kingdom also was going to fall. He prophesied that that was going to happen. He prophesied the destruction of Jerusalem, which was their capital city, and he warned them that they needed to repent of their sin and turn back to God. Now, what was their sin? Why would, why would their kingdom fall? Why would Isaiah prophesy that their sin was so bad that they would end up losing their whole kingdom? Well, their sin was worshiping other gods. They worshiped other gods, but it wasn't just that. They pursued alliances with their neighbors, uh, and these neighbors would ultimately enslave them. So God would say, don't ally yourself with your neighbors because they're going to enslave you, and that's exactly what happened. Uh, is that as they allied themselves, they became vassals to those other neighbors. Even worse, though, the people in Judah were taking advantage of the poor. They were taking advantage of the poor. Uh, they, they had systemic miscarriages of justice in their courts. And they would give religious lip service to God without even real compassion for people or for true dedication to God. And what, what we're reading about is what will happen after Jerusalem is conquered. So this is verse 1 in Isaiah 58. Shout it aloud. Do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their rebellion and to the descendants of Jacob their sins. For day after day they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways as if they are a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me for just decisions and seem eager for God to come near them. He starts off by saying, make a lot of noise, raise a shout, open up, your, open up your voice. And actually the word is like to open up your throat. That's what it would have been understood as, like as if Isaiah needs to like just really like let him have it, uh, you know, shout at them. Uh, now see, earlier in the book of Isaiah, God used this kind of language to tell Israel that they would be comforted. He, he would tell Isaiah, Open up, your, open up your throat to yell that I'm going to bring comfort to people. 
But in this, pl- in this point, he's saying that, that your sin has gotten so bad that you should open up your mouth to rem- remind one another that things are really bad, that things are not okay. See, people had rebelled against God. They were not obeying God. And it says that they, I don't know if you noticed this in, in verse 2, it says, um, they seem eager to know my ways. Um, they, they, they seem eager for God to come near them. Seem is actually probably not the right word here. In the original language, it probably means that they were eager to know God. They were eager to come near to God. Um, but there is some troubling irony with that. See, these people were committed to God in their hearts. They really loved God. They, they, loved, they loved God. They had some religious devotion. But they had been neglecting some of the really important things about following God, in particular, justice to the least in society. This is actually kind of a common problem. If you're honest with yourself, if I'm honest with myself, I, I really do love God. And I, I, I love the Lord, and I, I, I'm not just paying him lip service, but there are some things that we're blind to when it comes to doing justice for those around us. It's easy for us to pay religious lip service to God, but even to honestly think, I love God, and then still end up not living a lifestyle of justice towards others. Most people, <laughs> they don't wake up thinking, I'm going to be a really bad person today, right? You don't wake up thinking like, hey, I'm going to invent some new ways of doing evil today. No one does that. But what happens is that we're often blind to the places where we're actually not caring for others the way that we should. Does that make sense? And in that sense, we, we all have kind of a disobedience to God. Look at verse 3. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and exploit your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Um, These people were religiously devout. Okay, so what you see in them here is that they are seeking God through prayer and fasting. Fasting is where you would give up something, give up some food, in, in a way to remind yourself that what you really need is God. So you might not eat for a little while, just so you could remind yourself, the thing that I really need is not this food, the thing that I really need is God. And that's what some of these people were doing, because they knew that, they knew that Jerusalem was in danger, right? They knew that they were, they were in some real conflict, um, and so they asked God about their fasting. They said, hey, we've been doing our religious duties to you. We, we love you, and we're doing what we think is best, and they're expecting God to answer them in their prayers. They've been trying to do the right thing, but their situation has not changed. You ever felt like that before? Trying to do the right thing, and your situation doesn't change? See, their land was in disarray and in the ruins of war. The problem is, is that these people, they look decent on the outside, but they're blind to some internal failures. They have some devotion to God, but they're blind to the fact that their behavior towards the weakest in society has not changed. They're wondering why they aren't seeing God change their situation, but the truth is that they they haven't changed their destructive behaviors. And in particular, they're exploiting their workers. They're engaged in nonstop arguments, the Bible says, and they're even violent sometimes. See, it's possible for us to think that we're really trying to be good people, but be blind to some of how our behaviors have gone wrong. 
it's even possible for us to really love Jesus and say, I want to be a follower of Jesus, but still have gone wrong in some ways. Look at verse 5. Is this the kind of fast I have chosen, only a day for people to humble themselves? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast? A day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the kind of fasting that I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke. Is it not to share your food with the hungry, to provide the poor wanderer with shelter, when you see the naked to clothe them, and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? What he's saying is that fasting is not being about is, is not is not about being uh, uh, humble and religious. True devotion to God is not about just a, a simple internal attitude. Fasting in this case is about an opportunity to reform society around us. But you have to start with your own heart and actions. You have to start there. See, true religion entails justice. It means changing things in the culture that are broken and finding ways to reform society. See, following God is about you loving Jesus. It is about that. But it's not just about that. It's about external generosity, not just inner devotion. It's about looking for the weakest in society and serving them. See, remember, these people, they want to obey God, but they bought into the lie that following God is only about their private life, their religious devotion, and their prayers to God. The irony is that they're showing private devotion to God in their fasting because they want God to transform society. They want Jerusalem to be safe and secure again. But God is saying that if you, don't, if you don't pair private devotion with external service, you're going to miss out on all of the good things that God wants to do. He's saying show justice to the poor and the oppressed. Worship God alone, but also serve your neighbor. And this is an important word for us at Hope Denver. Here, here at Hope Denver, this is an important word for us. We want to see the hope of Jesus change people's lives in Denver. But we need to be careful that we don't fall into the trap of thinking that all we need to do is like come to a Sunday gathering and you know go home and have a private love for God. We need to be careful about that trap. We need to pair our devotion to God with service to others. They always go together. What happens when they go together? We're going to see here. Look at verse 8. Then your light will break forth like the dawn, and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you, and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call, and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help, and he will say, here am I. So what happens when you you pair internal devotion to God with a lifestyle of service? You see God show up miraculously. This is good news, friends. You see a move of God. What it's saying is that the light of your actions and your religious observance are going to be empowered by God's very presence. God's light will brighten your light. That's awesome stuff. He's saying that that it will be so much better for having paired religious devotion and service to others because you won't just have your effort. You will have the power of God behind your effort. This is why this is really powerful, and this is why the life of Jesus is the hope that Denver needs. See, what he's saying is that, that all of these things, when you cry out to God, 
God will go before you and he'll come behind you. He'll protect you. God will meet you when you let love and justice meet in your life. See, in love and justice, they're always accompanied by a move of God. The message of Jesus is not be really good. (laughs) The message of Jesus is that if you offer yourself in obedience to God, he will meet you with power and restoration. He'll bring healing and provision and protection to your life and to the world around us. I want to talk about an alternative view here. There are some people who don't really think that the miraculous is possible. That it's good for us to have some kind of religious devotion, it's good for us to serve others, but they don't believe in the miraculous. Uh, These are people that say that we should follow the example of Jesus. There there are people that are well-meaning people who will say, we really just need to follow the example of Jesus, but don't think that there's any mor- anything miraculous in it. Um, there's some people that, that they're advocates of what uh, theologians call the social gospel. Have you heard this term before, the social gospel? The social gospel is basically this idea that, that Jesus' life was not about God changing the world miraculously, but Jesus' life was an example to us that if we follow it, we will be the ones who change the world. Does that make sense? You take all of the miraculous out of the gospel, and that's the social gospel. Um, The social gospel, uh, it actually arises in 19th and 20th century Protestant theology. I'm kind of a nerd. If you want to talk more about this later on, I would love to chat. But what what these theologians thought is that God is not really in the habit of breaking into the world to do the miraculous. Whenever you read about miraculous things in the Bible, this was really the ancient world's way of saying we don't really know what this was, so we're going to say God did it. In, in the ancient world, people would mythologize things that we should naturalize, that we should view them as just being natural occurrences. And so these advocates of the social gospel, they tried to even demythologize Jesus. That is, when you read about Jesus in the Bible, they would try to take the miraculous elements out of it. For these people, Jesus was a failed social revolutionary. That Jesus was trying to lead a social movement, and it it failed at the cross. He died. And then he stayed dead, and that's the end of the story. See, Jesus, they say, expected a political revolution. They thought Jesus was trying to kick out the Romans, and, and he was trying to kind of get people to start being good to one another, and it was all this social revolution to change the ancient world. And that didn't happen, of course. Jesus died and remained dead, and Rome remained as the power, uh, the power of the age. So what happened is that Jesus' earliest followers, to establish their own authority, they added this supernatural mythology into Jesus' life. Does this kind of make sense, what I'm suggesting here? They added this stuff in. And so theologians like Albert Schweitzer and Rudolf Bultmann, they said, we should remove those old mythologies and try to get to the Jesus of history. Try to understand the real historical Jesus. So they said, Jesus died, but his example lives on. That's what resurrection means in the Bible. His example lives on, and it reminds society that things work best when you care for the poor. Things work best when you give dignity to minorities and women, when you seek reform in society within. These are all good things. Of course they're all good things, right? These are all wonderful things to to give dignity to minorities and to women, to care for the poor. And Jesus surely did these things. But he did something so much more than that. See, the result of the social gospel is that you are a human and you follow a human's example and what you get are human results. 
But when you read the Gospels in the Bible, what you see is that you follow God himself and you as a human, your effort is multiplied by divine power when you offer your life to God. See, and Isaiah is saying this here. Isaiah is saying that when you pair true devotion to God with justice on behalf of the weakest in society, you see God's miraculous power. And that is the way of Jesus that you see in the Bible. Look at verse 9. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger and malicious talk, and if you spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness, and your night will become like the noonday. What he's saying is that if you stop economic injustice, like slavery, if you stop your social injustice, like looking down on other people and blaming other people for your life, and if you take your religious devotion and the effort that you use in doing evil and turn that around and start caring for the hungry, if you start caring for the oppressed, then your society will be renewed and your life will be beautified. That's what this is saying right here. Look at verse 11. Then the Lord, the Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. Your people will rebuild the ancient ruins and will raise up the age-old foundations. You will be called repairer of broken walls, restorer of streets with dwellings. This is saying that God responds to our devotion coupled with our acts of justice with his restoration, with his guidance, and with his miraculous provision. He's saying to these people, you're going to rebuild the city of Jerusalem because you did justice first. He's saying that God will bring his miraculous power when you obey him, when you are devoted to him, and when your devotion is accompanied by justice for the least in society. Look at verse 13. If you keep your feet from breaking the Sabbath, from doing as you please on my holy day, if you call the Sabbath a delight and the Lord's holy day honorable, and if you honor it not by going your own way and not doing as you please or speaking idle words, then you will find your joy in the Lord. I will cause you to ride in triumph on the heights of the land and to feast on the inheritance of your father Jacob, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. He adds in here a command to obey the Sabbath, to take the seventh day of the week on Saturday and to to make it a day of rest. And that day was about religious devotion. It was about honoring God. And he's saying you should keep that up. Keep up your religious devotion, your observance to the day of rest. Don't just have a day of recreation. Have a day where you're honoring God. Take some time out of your rest to honor God and to think about what he's done. But he's, he's, saying, he's saying that it's more than that. See, we at Hope Denver, we gather here on weekends, but this is just a small part of what we do, right? This is a small thing for us. I mean, the, the real life of our church is in your hope groups uh, on, on a regular basis, meeting with one another and loving one another. And what, what God is saying here is that when you follow this pattern of rest and of justice, of devotion and of serving others, that's when you're going to have joy. That's when you're going to have God's miraculous provision. And gosh, I think we need more joy in our lives, don't we? Life is hard. We need God's joy in our lives. I mean, if you just try to conjure up good feelings on your own and be like, well, I just I have my faith and I love Jesus, that's not enough. You need God breaking into your life, giving you real lasting joy. That's what we need. 
He's saying that when you follow this pattern for life, you're going to have God's joy and God's miraculous provision. And the subtext of this whole thing is that following God is not just about your private religious devotion. It's not about your feelings. It's also about public justice with personal devotion, corporate sharing of God's blessings, loving one another. He's saying when you bring personal love for God and you pair it with a lifestyle of service to others, it's there that God brings in miraculous restoration of your life and of the world around you. This is exactly what we see in the life of Jesus. You see somebody who's deeply committed to, to God the Father. Jesus loves God the Father. But he doesn't seclude himself in religious isolation. You notice that about Jesus' life. And if you, if you haven't read the Gospels, I just encourage you to read them. Read them, read them starting with Matthew. Jesus doesn't seclude himself in this like religious isolation where he's like, I love God, I love you, you know. What he does is he lives his life in service to others. See, it was Christ's life of service that inaugurated the most important movement in the history of the world. See, it may not seem like this in a post-Christian city like Denver. It may not seem like this in kind of our postmodern culture. But Christianity is the greatest force for good in the world today. Christianity is an incredible force for good in the world today. Yet the danger for us is to think about Christianity like it's some private and personal devotion to God when it's really meant to be something that's taken to the streets in serving the poorest of the poor in society. It's something that's meant to be applied with how we treat refugees, with how we treat other immigrants. It's something that's meant to be embodied in welcoming others into our homes for a meal, in generosity to organizations like Ordinary Nurses, the, the missions organization that we support here that cares for malnourished, uh, malnourished babies and their families in rural Guatemala. It's, it's in serving that way that we really bring about change in the world. See, if we want to see God change our city, and don't you, gosh, like, our city's a wonderful place, but there's a lot of loneliness and brokenness in Denver. If you want to change our city, we need to cry out to God in prayer, and we need to embody a lifestyle of service for others. We need both of these things. And this is exactly the way of life that Jesus shows us. So with that, I'd like to welcome you to the table of communion. Could I have the, the keys up? Brother Bill, thanks, man. See, when we look at the bread in the cup, we're reminded that Jesus didn't hold back on what was most dear to himself. Jesus wasn't saying, hey, I need to protect my schedule. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. We, there's times where you really do need to protect your schedule. But Jesus wasn't saying, like, hey, I need to make sure I have some me time, you know? Jesus, when he thought about you and thought about me, the only logical thing that he could do was say, I'm going to offer it all. Because he knew that our need was so great. The ways in which that we hurt, we hurt other people, the ways that we hurt ourselves, and the ways in which we, we disobey God and we can't help it and we try our best, that's what Jesus had in mind when he thought about you and me and he thought, I'm going to give it all up for them. See, there's no amount of religious devotion and there's no amount of serving others that can bring you and me healing. Only a miraculous work of God can bring us healing. And that's what you see 
on the cross of Christ.